0: Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death and in so doing, discover how to truly live. You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Man, I am thankful for the good gift God gives us in music and then men and women to write words that remind us of the truth. But now we get to worship under the Word. So take your Bibles, let's go to Ecclesiastes together. Before we do, I want to encourage you with something. Last week, throughout the week, two different times, I had two different guys come to me and say, hey, I did what you told me to do. I sat down and I read the whole book of Ecclesiastes in one sitting. And you know what? It was awesome. It was such a blessing. To which I responded, yeah, no kidding. It's awesome, isn't it? Like sitting down and reading the Bible and having it change you. I just want to encourage you to do the same thing again. Maybe it's setting aside probably about 45 minutes. If you can set aside 45 minutes to be undistracted, uh, uninterrupted, and sit down and read the entire book of Ecclesiastes, oh, there's two reasons for that. Number one, it's going to be good for you because you're opening God's word, the divinely inspired word of God that is meant to change us so we might know God and respond to him rightly. In other words, it's going to make you more holy, it's going to give you joy, it is going to grow you in grace. Stuff that I cannot make happen to you. But by God's grace, he uses these wonderful means of Bible reading, prayer, and the body of Christ. The second thing, though, there's just simply no good way for me, uh, as a young and experienced preacher, to do service to the tension that builds in the text of Ecclesiastes. Today, we're just going to cover the poem at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, verses 2 through 11. And if I were to leave us hanging where Kohelet left us hanging, we would all despair. I've called this sermon, my my title is Hevel, Poetry of Despair. Uh, Because when we get to the end, you're going to realize there's nothing left to do. It's awful. And what I want to encourage you with is to actually go and read the rest of the story. Now, I am not going to leave us hanging in despair. Uh, First of all, most importantly, I don't want to have some sort of a a mass exodus, and we're just done. What are we doing here? This is all meaningless. But more importantly, Colossians 1.28 tells us, Him we proclaim. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching everyone so that they might be mature in Christ Jesus. So that's my intention today, that we would not only hang on the edge of Ecclesiastes 1-11 through 11 with despair, but see what the whole canon, the whole redemptive history tells us in light of these truths. So I encourage you to take time to set aside, get 45 minutes alone and read this so that you might understand that tension as it builds through the book because it's actually a, it's a very good literary device as we're going through like, oh my goodness, and feeling all that weight. And to kind of allow it to sit in your own heart as you continue on and then let Kohelet answer that for you will be very rich. So I'll encourage you to do that. Um, I'm going to preach from verses 2 through 11 today, uh, but uh, verse 1, we're going to kind of go back next week to bring it in because it kind of is going to help us explain these words from the preacher. But today we will read from verses 1 through 11, and then we'll get praying and we'll start. Ecclesiastes 1 1 through 11. This is God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has, already been, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are a uh, rebellious uh, and sometimes ignorant people, but Lord, By your grace, you have opened our eyes. By your grace, you have shown us your love. You have called us into the light. We repent of our sin and trust you and you alone. Together, we thank you then and rejoice in the fact that Jesus is better. Rejoice today that you and you alone can bring us real, lasting, eternal joy. I pray now as we open the word together that you would bless your people. God, that you would make us holy. I pray that we would understand what life is about and how it feels to live in this way under the sun, but that we would look higher to who you are and that we might grow in grace. I pray then, Lord, for this time of preaching as we worship under the word, may you cause us to love you more. Give us faith, increase our faith, Lord. Pour out your grace through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I use the term five and dime shop, probably most of you would know what I'm talking about, at least roughly. Now, you may not visit a five and dime shop. I don't know if anything costs five or ten cents anymore, but you at least know what I'm talking about when I said this term. Um, Several years ago, though, no one knew what a five and dime shop was. They had no idea. And it wasn't until Frank Winfield Woolworth came along that they actually knew what it was. This was a man who wanted to make something of himself, wanted to make his way in the world. Now, as I did a little bit of research, I couldn't find any notable things about his family or anything special. Uh, he didn't come like, from severe poverty or severe wealth. seems like he had a pretty normal upbringing in uh, the upstate New York. But Woolworth wanted to work in retail merchandise, and he wanted to make it big. He wanted to get money. He wanted to have success. And his beginnings, as he kind of tried some things, they were modest sprinkled with a lot of unsuccessful startups, but then a few that did the stuff, and eventually he found his stride, and he became the first to present the public with a simple model for buying merchandise. Simple pricing, there's no haggling. This is the price, if you wanted it, you could buy it. Also simple sales, the buyer could simply take it off the rack, take it up to the front register, and purchase it. Now you may remember the, the old store Woolco. Or you may also know the athletic wear company, today still, Foot Locker. These are both parts of the larger organizational or original company called F.W. Woolworth Company. Woolworth, in his time, saw unparalleled success. I mean, he just rose and rose and rose. And all of his five and dime stores just exploded. He had vast fame in one sense, but he also had a vast fortune. By the time of his death at the age of 66, in 1919, he had really done well for himself. If you think about surplus or a profit or what he gained, by the end of his life, he was worth, this is 1919, he was worth $76.5 million. That's about $1.2 billion in 2021 money. Not bad for a guy who was toiling, trying his best to sell stuff for 5 and 10 cents. I think he did a pretty good job. But I want to ask the question, Where did all the money go? Where did the Woolworth Company go? Most of us don't know what the Woolworth Company is because there's no Woolworth Company down the street from us. Most of us probably buy our stuff on Amazon or we we might once in a while go to a brick and mortar store. But Woolworth Company, where, where did that go? After his death and the death of his wife as well, some of the details kind of shook out and his will got settled and a huge chunk of his fortune was put in the lap of his beautiful granddaughter, Barbara Hutton. Now, I didn't know that name. A few of you probably know that name. If you like old movies, she is one of the people that married Cary Grant. Um, But uh, you know, I didn't know too much about her. And after I did some of the research, I finally realized that the reason we're talking about her right now and the reason even people back then were talking about her was at one point she was very, very rich, that she was kind of famous for being rich. In fact, uh, the name that she eventually took on that people would call her was poor little rich girl. (laughs) That's what one of her her names was. Now let me say this, that when she came into her 21st birthday, 1933, she came into her 21st birthday, Barbara Hutton was handed an inheritance of 50 million dollars. Now I've turned 21 before. I I actually don't quite remember what I got for my 21st birthday, but I can promise you it wasn't 50 million dollars. On her 21st birthday, she comes into this, and again, a conservative estimate for that is probably equivalent to about $800 million in 2021 money. So it's fair to say that she was quite well off. Now, if you look at her story, look at her life, I'll admit that it's never fair to categorize someone without really knowing them. I didn't know this lady. But from what she told the world and what the world knew about her, we could observe that Barbara Hutton was insecure and longed for fulfillment in this world. In fact, she, again, eventually became known as this poor little rich girl. According to an article by Melissa Ferreira, Hutton's weakness was shopping, especially for her loved ones, whom she lavished with expensive gifts, such as jewelry, extravagant designer clothing, and even art pieces once owned by Marie Antoinette. I like that. She goes on to say that her spending wasn't her only downfall. She pounced on any object or person that caught her fancy. Through a series of seven husbands and numerous affairs, her fortune dwindled, leaving her with almost nothing at the time of her death in 1979 at the age of 66. A fortune of 50 million 1919 dollars almost entirely gone at her sad death. Woolworth this towering entrepreneur, a man who made it big in his life, think about this guy, leaves his legacy, his five-and-dime kingdom, and his fortune to the generations that follow, only for it to drift into insignificance and cultural oblivion. Um, it seems like history, and this is only one story, right? It seems like history is full of examples of big money, Big organizations, big companies, big families, big gains in this life that are wasted and lost in a fraction of the time that it took to actually create that wealth. In the opening poem of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet admits that this is, in fact, the way of the world. In our text, he seeks to make it abundantly clear that what happened to Barbara Hutton And what happened to her grandfather, the big Frank Winfield Woolworth, will happen to every single person in the world. Cahelet breaks into our reality, asking us to answer this question, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the governing question for this poem. He's asking this, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you remember last week we kind of introduced the book of Ecclesiastes, and we talked about several words that we were going to need to understand if we were going to properly interpret this book. As we look at the first line of the poem, we don't need to guess which word is important to Kohelet. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is that curious Hebrew word hevel. It's used 37 times in this short 12 chapter book. And if that's not enough to get our attention, he bookends his speech here in 1-2, and also at the end at 12-8, he bookends his speech with this call that all is vanity. He says all is Hevel. And yes, it's appropriate for us to translate Hevel as vanity, but as I reminded you before, that's only one part of the definition of the actual word that's used here. The word is used throughout the book and throughout the Old Testament as something different than merely vanity or meaninglessness. Even if we were to define this word the same way that we see it all the way through Ecclesiastes, we'd eventually say, I don't know if that's exactly the right way to translate it. Flip to the back and look at Ecclesiastes 11.10. See if you know what I mean here. He says in Ecclesiastes 11.10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth... And the dawn of life are vanity, hevel. So, is he saying that youth and the dawn of life are meaningless? No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying they're hevel. He's saying that they're fleeting, they're temporary, they're short lived, they're transitory. He's using the broader term breath or vapor to show the short lived nature of youthfulness. This is much of how the Old Testament uses the word as well. Let me just give you a couple of examples Psalm 39.5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, hevel. About Psalm 144.4, man is like a breath, hevel. His days are like a passing shadow. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, hevel but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Or how about one of the most off-the-wall ones from Genesis 4, 4 through 8? This surprised me when I first did the Hebrew work and I said, oh my goodness, this really is true. What's going on in Genesis 4 that has to do with Hevel? Verse 4 says this, And Abel, Hevel, his name is Hevel, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel, Hevel, And his offering. Now, verse 8: Cain spoke to Abel, Hevel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, Hevel, and killed him. Do you see what's happening here? What's going on? The first person to die in the Bible, the first person to expire, the first person to go away, his name is Hevel. Uh, The word hevel is used over and over again to talk about something that is mere breath, something that is short-lived. Now, it's still right for us to make the conclusion and to hear the author use this as vain and purposeless, but we need to make sure that we allow him, the author, to use this word as he intended to, even if he intended to use it with some matter of ambiguity. Now, that doesn't mean that he's trying to just be like wishy-washy here. He's actually using a concrete word, breath, and he wants us to see the whole semantic range of what that word can mean. Uh, Ian Provan, a Hebrew scholar, says, It is plainly true that everything to do with human existence, even if not meaningless, is nevertheless ephemeral or fleeting or transitory. When Kohelet uses this word, he may be trying to bring out different parts of the definition for different purposes, because ultimately we know that all of life is not meaningless. But we do know that with a certain perspective in life, a God-conscious perspective, all of life, if you don't have this perspective, can feel utterly meaningless. This is how he begins his poem, and therefore how he starts his book, declaring to us that all of life is hevel. Look at verse 2 again. We'll start there. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you and I had come to this text without this little lesson on the word hevel, we might be a little bit concerned at this point. We might be a little bit uncomfortable. Because if we're hearing him correctly say these things, we're like, uh, he's saying that all things are meaningless, they're pointless, they're, they're absurd, it's like not worth living for. Is this exactly Right? And as a Christian, we know that the rest of the Bible actually says that life does matter. It's not meaningless or pointless. But Ecclesiastes is the Bible too, right? So we have to balance what we understand with the truth that we find throughout all of Scripture. This is called the analogy of faith. This is how we read Scripture. When we don't make sense of one part or the other and it seems to go against it, that's called theological work, (laughs) we need to work it out and understand what's going on. So if we're going to be faithful to what we know to be true about life and we're going to be faithful about living and listening to what Kohelet is going to tell us, we better take the rest of what he's going to say really seriously. He is going to tell us this in the rest of the book. Verse 3 says, "What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun?" This is the first thing he says after this. Verse three is an invitation for us. It's an invitation for us to hear his theme and motto and kind of put it against or contrast it to our own experience, what we know to be true about the world. He's asking us to consider all his vanity against our own experience. He says, what does a man gain by all his toil under the sun? Now, you and I might answer, and, and rightly so, well, we have all kind of things that we pursue. Of course, we want to gain money, Uh, Gain progress, uh, maybe even some notoriety, some fame at the end of our life if we can make a name for ourselves somehow. I mean, these are things that we pursue. We all want maybe maybe not all of these things, but at least one of these things. Maybe we find ourselves you know working hard to make our first million dollars, or at least becoming independently wealthy, or maybe we want to make the next big advance in our working community in our field. Perhaps you are looking to be one that comes up with a new system or cutting edge research that's going to advance us somehow. Or maybe it's not about those things. Maybe it's more about a legacy that will matter for generations to come. You know, maybe you don't desire riches and accomplishments per se. You just want to matter to the world, you want to be remembered. What does a man gain by all his toil under the sun? What is it that we set to achieve? What we set out for our lives? What do we want to make of our lives? I like how one guy says it. What reward is there on the balance sheet of life for all the effort and hard work that human beings put into the business of living? What happens at the end? Do you have any margins? Any profits? What gain is there at the end of your life? The best answer is going to come to us in verse 8. But before we get there, Kohelet is going to show us what he means. He wants us to talk about reality. He wants to show us the endless cycles in nature that bring us no gain. He begins with human existence and then he runs through the four Greek elements of nature. Listen to verse 4 through 7. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You can feel it, right? You can feel the cycles going, each of these things doing work toiling as it were, but never getting any further than where they started at the beginning. Verse four, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, when we would normally pick that phrase up, I almost guarantee you will actually respond and say, what did he just say? You would say, oh, that things come and go. Not so. Look what he says. A generation goes and comes. The opposite of what we would think. He does this on purpose. You notice here that Kohelet purposely switches these things up. A generation goes, dies, and a new one replaces it. It comes. He's showing the cyclical and changeless nature of these realities. Uh, Just to remind you, your generation isn't ultimate. (laughs) Another one is coming right behind you to fill in. And you know what? After that, they will go away as well. And one will come right behind them. Not only that, he's also hitting on this bigger theme that life is hevel here. He's just said that a generation dies, but the earth remains forever. He's pointing out our short temporal existence. But even the earth, with all its remaining foreverness, doesn't ever get anywhere. Notice this, verse 5, The sun rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. He's saying something that we understand. The sun comes up, travels across the sky, and then it sets. And then, as it were, it goes around the earth, and the next day it comes up, it goes across the sky, and it goes down again. And then guess what happens again? It goes around the earth, and it comes up. You get the point, right? Over and over again, the sun does what it's supposed to, never getting anywhere. It's the same way with the wind. Look at verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Now, at first, this looks a little bit better. I mean, when we think about this, the sun, man, it's so trackable and so predictable. I and mean, we kind of know exactly when it's going to come up in the morning. We know when it's going to set at night. We know where it's going to be. These things are very predictable. But the wind, whew, I don't know exactly where this is going to go. I don't know if it's going to go over this, come down. We have tracking weather guys. are trying to figure out where the winds are going to take these big storms. We have no idea. Try to tell us exactly where it's going to go. It blows to the south, then to the north, and it goes every which way. But notice this, it never accomplishes anything because in the end of verse 6, it still returns. It continues to do the same thing. All the toil of the wind, think about the strength, all the toil of the wind doesn't get anywhere. There's no gain for it at all. How about water? Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now we know that the water is evaporated out of these large bodies of water, transferred over the land through the sky, and it comes down, released uh, as it flows out as rain. I mean, it's an amazing process, but Kohelet isn't giving us a science lesson on what's happening in the water cycle. No, he's pointing out the fact that the large bodies of water, the seas, the oceans, the lakes, they never get to a place where they are full. It's amazing. They never get to a place where they say, oh, I can't take anymore. They never get to a place where they have gained a sufficient amount of water. And It's at this point, after we've looked at what's happening in these natural cycles, that we begin to agree with what he says at the beginning of verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. The term weariness is really helpful here. The word literally means trouble or striving. He's saying that all the work of nature, even including human existence, all the natural cycles that we observe are full of striving, trouble, and result in weariness. In the rest of verse 8, he quickly rattles off just how unproductive we even are as in our human experience. He talks about man's faculties, if you notice. He says three things. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, the way that we normally read this initially in English, that you would kind of think that that first statement is actually part of the first beginning about weariness. I would think that I first I would read it, it would sound something like this. It's so bad, and the weariness is so bad, I can't even tell you. I can't even utter it. That's sometimes how we read this, but even in English, you can actually see that he's using three parallel statements after this point about weariness. He's talking about man's faculties, speaking, seeing, and hearing. It's even more clear in Hebrew, but kind of a literal translation would be something like this. A man is not able to speak. An eye is not satisfied with seeing. An ear is not filled with hearing. Kohel isn't so much saying that our mouths and our eyes and our ears will work forever. That's not what he's trying to say here. It's more that the acts of speaking, seeing, and hearing do not gain us anything. They're, in a sense, very much still like the oceans and the seas that are never filled up. They never bring us ultimate gain or reward. These natural cycles continue on and on, never accomplishing anything new. So says verse 9 and 10, look there. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. The earth and humanity toil on, never arriving at something new always predictably coursing on, doing the same things that every generation before them has done, never going anywhere new. And to this we cry, hevel, vapor, meaningless, vanity. He closes, he closes out verse 11 with the final nail in the coffin. Think about this. Surely we would say, at the, at the very least, you know, our variation or our innovation, it will be remembered for the time to come, right? I mean, surely we will be known to the generations that follow us. To this, Kohelet, shoots straight with us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Whew. Now, some of you may take issue with this because you're like, I studied history. I remember a few things about the world. or like, we have computers or these phones in our pockets, don't we? They didn't have those 300 years ago. See, we've got new things. I'll give you some of that. So that's partly true, sure. We uh, have seen mankind invent a few new things, but in reality, they have simply come up with ways to improve what we have already been given in creation. He never gets anything new out of the whole thing. Charles Bridges, who's an 18th century-born preacher, says this, the most that we can boast of is a little more than an enlarged discovery of the properties of matter and the more accurate application of what has already been from the beginning. And concerning remembering people, another scholar says this, Kohelet is not so much claiming that human beings are utterly oblivious to the past as he is undercutting their deepest and vainglorious aspirations to secure some permanent place, some remembrance in history. He's saying, if you're going to go after that, if you're going to go after being remembered, you're going after wind. No way. will not be remembered. Uh, some of you know this little phrase. Some of you are even old enough to believe that this little phrase is true. I am. Not that old, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Historically, uh, this is credited this little statement to Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr when he wrote in his published journal in 1849. But let's be honest. Jean-Baptiste ain't no original. Kohelet said this long before he did. And if we're following the logic of Kohelet, he wasn't even the first one to say it. People before him understood the more that things change, the more they stay the same. Nothing is new under the sun. So if we're honest by this point, it's pretty difficult to prove Kohelet wrong. We can look at the world and come to see that he's right. His conclusion seems to be right. All is vanity. And we gain nothing from all our toil under the sun. Some of us are still in the middle of believing that lie that we can gain something under the sun. We're trying to build things up. We're trying to establish ourselves here under the sun. But as we see here, this old man is telling us in wisdom, you're going to toil, but for what? Money? Progress? Notoriety? He explains, none of this will last. None of it. None of it can be gained. All of it is fleeting. And this makes us say then with him, man, it's all meaningless, pointless to continue. I told you that Kohelet would leave us or take us to the edge and leave us there, and that's exactly what he's done in this first poem. This is the poem of despair. What is it then that a person can do with this message? Uh, I mean, again, if I, if I close shop right now, be pretty be uh, pretty negative, pretty pessimistic for us. Is this really where we're going to stop then today, Chris? Well, let me start with the text itself. Kohelet did not say that there is nothing for man to gain. What? I thought you just preached that whole thing. No, no, no. He did not say that there is nothing to gain. He said that the man has nothing to gain from his toil under the sun. This is not some sort of a clever backdoor trick that I'm dreaming up either. I'm not trying to like solve the problem that no one can solve. No, no, no. The phrase under the sun here is like, in a sense... It's like fudge in fudge ripple ice cream. It's all the way throughout this book. It's just weaved all the way back and forth. In fact, he uses this term under the sun 29 times in this short little book. And when he uses the term, he's referring to living here on earth without ever taking God into account. He's saying that if you were to scientifically observe all the stuff about life, try to understand it and with all of our experiences and never have god speak into those realities then you're going to end up saying that it's all an endless cycle it's all loss there's no gain in it and the process might as well be meaningless the story of barbara hutton and particularly of fw woolworth rings true to this very message doesn't it it seems that Woolworth accomplished, all that he gained was lost. And still today it's in the process of being forgotten. There's another story that sounds an awful lot like this one that's going to help shine light on our problem today. It's found in the Bible. It's found in Luke 12. Jesus told it. Jordan read it a little bit ago. Let me just do it again. And he told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my good, goods. And I insert in here all that I have gained, all that has been so plentiful here under the sun. And, with, and, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, the things that you have gained on earth, things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus says the person who toils under the sun for gain will never take it with him. He can't. If he is not rich toward God, he has nothing. His only hope is actually to hope in God. He must be rich in this way. And Jesus helps us understand this, right? In his other writings and his other speaking, he told us what is truly valuable. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this, "'Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth "'where moth and rust destroy, "'where thieves break in and steal.'" I can say where your inheritance is squandered by those that come after you. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And in the Chris version it says, and even those inheritors don't squander it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, there are two simple but profound things that you need to take away today. Number one, stop setting your heart, your expectations, and your calendar on gaining something under the sun. Say it again. Stop setting your heart, your expectations, your desires, and your calendar on gaining something here under the sun. Life is a vapor, it's fleeting. It cannot be grasped. And if you put your hope in this life, it will be meaningless to you. If someone were to look at your calendar, maybe your budget, maybe your house, or maybe what you do day in and day out, or if somehow we were able to expose our hearts, would we see that what we are laying up for ourselves is treasure in heaven? Or do we love the stuff under the sun? He calls us today To stop setting our hearts and our expectations and our calendar our agenda around gaining something here under the sun. But the second thing we're to see is this. Set your heart and your expectations and your calendar and your life at being rich toward God in Christ Jesus. I had a friend um, who in his house, which is a small apartment, had this sign that just said, be rich toward God. And I just didn't, I thought it was clever. I just didn't connect it with this story. I didn't realize until years later that what he was trying to do was remind himself not to be rich and gain what was under the sun because he realized what the Bible told him. And he didn't want to live for something that was fleeting, that would disappear, that would be gone. And he understood that living for that under the sun would be gone and meaningless. So rather, he put that sign up to remind him be rich toward God. What I'd ask you to do then is find grace, mercy, plentiful satisfaction, fulfillment. And here we go, gain in Christ. Isn't that the, isn't that the question he asked here? What does a man gain by all the toil that he does under the sun? What I want us to do instead is look towards grace and mercy, fulfillment, and gain in the kingdom of heaven, in God himself. What does Paul say in Philippians 1.21? We all know this, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ask the normal person down the street if dying would be gain to them. <laughs> Most of them think that's ludicrous. Paul has a background here that's he's explaining to us, though. He understands what it means to be rich toward God. He is living his life to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. For him to live is more proclamation of Jesus Christ and his glory of the Father throughout the earth. But for him to die, he's not trying to kill himself, but if for him to die, oh man, he can finally come into his inheritance. He says in the same passage that he could finally be with Christ. And he tells us that is gain. That is far better. So I'll ask you then, what will you do? Will you be satisfied with gathering things here under the sun that you cannot hold on to? Are you okay with that? Is that what you want your legacy to be? One that is fleeting and gone as like a vapor? Are you happy with your meaningless life under the sun? Well, it sure seems to have a little meaning right now. If we all can just agree that it's meaningful, do you want to live an untruthful life? we have been told the truth. This man of wisdom comes and asks us if we wanna be satisfied with gathering things under the sun that we cannot hold to, or will we believe the gospel and be rich toward God? This message is both for the unbeliever and the believer. If you're sitting here today, it's the right message. Be rich toward God. If you don't know Christ, this message is for you. This is the one that says, no, 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 life is meaningless under the sun. But let's go over the sun. Remember who made the sun? The one who is over all. Be rich toward God. The gospel is simple. God is the benevolent, righteous, perfect creator. He has made us and calls us to obey. But we, over and over again, both in Adam and our own lives, have sinned against him. Unrighteousness. And because of that, we deserve hell. We deserve damnation and judgment. God, in his great mercy, has given Jesus Christ to take the penalty for our sin. And he calls us to love and trust Jesus and Jesus alone for our penalty, for what we deserve. If we would trust Christ alone, we too can have forgiveness of sins. So if you do not know Christ, may today be the day that you repent of your sin and trust him completely and find that the things under the sun Are not the whole story, that there is something more for us, that we can live for something that is far better. And for us as Christians, what does your life, your bank account, your calendar say about your own heart? What things are you being rich toward? Don't waste your life. Be rich toward God. Let's pray. Our Father, May your name be hallowed throughout the earth. Lord, we ask for your grace today as we want to proclaim it with true hearts of obedience and love, but it is difficult for us. We ask for your grace to obey, to mortify the sins of the body, and to walk in obedience and joy in Jesus Christ. I pray today that you'd help those who listen to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would trust you and you alone and find that they do not have to live for the things that are passing away and their life does not have to be meaningless. It is short, but Father, that does not mean it's meaningless. Lord, would you make us rich toward God? Would you help us to obey and follow you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.